Hello and welcome. This is episode four of my podcast. This is the last episode. Thank you, thank you, thank you for sticking with me. Um, In this episode, we talk about uh, theater in prison. Uh, This episode is titled, and the blog that goes with it, uh, it's titled Playmakers Behind Bars. We talk about not just actors, uh, writers, And really just providing an opportunity for those in prison to express themselves. Um, For this episode, I interview Dave Barton. Dave Barton is a theater founder. He's founded two theater groups. He has been an artistic director. He's been a director. Um, He has written. He has worked overseas, both in the UK and in Malta. And uh, he is now a teacher and he's working on finishing his grad studies and becoming a college professor. Um, I was kind of inspired to go down this road because I feel like when we talk about cultural capital, we're talking about the the art, the artist, whether it be an actor or a director or the lighting designer, they're giving the audience something. And that audience member, the the point of it, right? Why are we here? Uh, The audience gets something from it. And then they go out into their community, they go out into their life, and they carry that with them. And that changes them. It changes the community. That's how art changes the world not to get corny but I mean there there's a reason um people want to do art and there's a reason people want to see art and there's a reason people want to talk about what they experienced when they went and experienced art and they tell people about it uh so it's sort of it's it's the why right if you were to ask anyone who works in an artistic field what's your why it's because, yeah, we really do think we can change the world, um, you know, in one little step at a time, one little experience at a time. And uh, if you look at it in terms of, okay, what is something that people might think, well, that's separate from me and that has nothing to do with me. And quite often uh, there is this belief that those that are in prison should serve their time, learn their lesson, and be punished. That their time in prison is about self-improvement, but punishment. You're there to serve your time. You're there for a reason. Okay. And if that's how someone views it, that's fine. If someone maybe has more forgiveness in their hearts and thinks people that are behind bars should be given compassion and should work on themselves in the system and you know the, the money that goes to maintaining the prison should there should be more resources allocated to those that are there there's that segment of the population the question i would like to explore is when we remove people from our society and we put them somewhere um where they they will come back out so they will rejoin their communities, their families, their friends, their work. Um, They will be a member of their community. Is there cultural capital that they're giving us, the community? And what are we taking from that? When they go to prison, we can say, okay, they're away. They're separated. They're there. But they will, the the ones that I'm talking about, those that will come back out, they will be part of the community and they have something to offer. And, um, and so we, 
I would like to get into that in this episode. I want to talk about it. I want to think about it. Uh, what does that mean? We can't forever just go, well, I'm not part of that. They went away. Okay, they did. And then they're going to come out and they're going to be members of our community. And they'll have lived life experiences to share. It's part of who they are. So what does that do to the community? How does that add to cultural capital? And how do we maintain cultural capital? And in terms of, you know, cultural capital being a, a place for, for expressing political ideas, protest, um, those, those emotions, can we allow those as a society? Are we okay with those that have been in prison expressing that, protesting and, 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 uh, expressing themselves in a political way. Uh, when, when can we start um, embracing that people who have been behind bars have a lived experience they want to share through their art and that we can experience it and we can be changed by it and we can accept that cultural capital and go out into the community with that cultural capital. Uh, and I read the uh, the academic journal that I read was from the Drama Review. It was from 2003. So I think this is actually my oldest article um, that I read as I was exploring and looking into this. Um, and it's by Lorraine Mahler. And it is, uh, it is titled, A Day in the Life of a Prison Theater Program. So... Mahler goes into looking at Sing Sing, which is in New York. And if you've watched Law and Order or something, it's been mentioned, you know, in how, countless movies and television shows, right? Uh, she looks into uh, performance taking place where um, is happening in prisons. It's taking place in prison. So the audience are either those who work in the prison or are fellow prisoners. And the performers are prisoners. And Mahler goes into um, what theater does to the prison community. So uh, there was a program, Rehabilitation Through the Arts, RTA, um, that has been used to improve literacy for prisoners who haven't graduated from high school or obtained a GED. And they, you know, these prisoners who are serving time their life took a turn somewhere along the way and they ended up in prison. But prior to that, they came from the poorer communities. So they didn't get the same opportunities, the same opportunities to experience cultural capital to learn. Like I was talking about in episode two, the feast uh, allotment theater program. That is not something that those serving time in Sing Sing, Sing would have had. Uh the majority of prisoners in Sing Sing, Sing are African American and Latino. Uh, Mahler notes that three quarters of prisoners are from the poorer areas in New York City. So uh, they go to prison, leaving you know a scenario that wasn't great, um, you know, in terms of what was happening in the schools, in their community, they didn't have that opportunity to uh, receive cultural capital, another argument for why the arts exist. And so Mahler goes into how 
a program like at the theater program, the RTA Rehabilitation Through the Arts is really used not just to be creative, which is important, but it, it, it is teaching these prisoners literacy skills. It's teaching them to work with others. It's teaching them to have um, success and to have fun, to enjoy something that not every moment of every day has to be a punishment, that you can learn lessons through, uh, you know, grace and art and understanding and compassion. And that doesn't take, a, you know, away the, the guilt and it doesn't make excuse anything, but it's about creating a well-rounded person. It's about giving them something, uh, a healthy way to learn, express themselves. And so when they go out into the community and they will, they will be released. This is the bottom line. When I talk to Dave and we, we get to the interview portion, you will hear this. He talks about these people will go back into the community. And hopefully stay there and won't go end up back in jail. But if they do, they may be bouncing back in and out. And the point of it is that the community has something to offer them. They they have something to offer to their community. And a theater program is a way to facilitate that. So that being said, all of that, this example by Mahler about... Uh, a literacy program through a theater program, literacy through theater, learning to read, learning to express yourself, learning to work with others, gaining knowledge, gaining skills, and, uh, and getting to the, you know, high school graduate level of being a functioning adult is important. It changes the person, the prisoner, the citizen who goes back out into their community and it changes their community. And um, and that's what we talk about a lot. Uh, my interview with Dave Barton is that cultural capital. It's a harder road. There are more obstacles. There can be disappointment. And uh, not everything is, you know, it's it, it's real life. It's not a fairy tale like, oh, I did this. I learned my lesson and they lived happily ever after. It's constant work. Just like Theater is constantly work to diversify. It is constant. You cannot let up. Just like from episode one, when you let up, if you don't stay on top of it, and then you end up with protests in 2015, 16, 2017, 2020, and Black Americans are looking for ways to protest through theater 40, 50 years after the civil rights era. So um, this is another example prisoners behind bars serving their time, um, gaining cultural capital and giving it to their community. So uh, that all said, here is my interview with Dave Barton. Thank you. I'm very, very uh, excited. Uh, This is our last episode in the podcast series, and I am with Dave Barton, Dave, if you can introduce yourself so everyone can hear your voice and um, tell us what it is you do, that what is your title, and what does that mean? Okay, uh, I'm the artistic director for Monkey Wrench Collective. Um, it's been a couple of years since we've done any programming, but essentially as artistic director, what I do is I pick all of the work that we do, and um, I usually am the one who directs it as well. Uh, so that's an ID kind of an, an AD oversees 
uh, a season for any particular theater generally. Uh, their guiding vision ideally um, is what uh, gives some meaning to the process of the of what the theater is doing um, and get, it provides a voice for it. So oftentimes uh, the artistic director is the face, even if there are other people who may be doing more in there, like uh, the people who are funding the theater or the actors for that matter. Um, so that's essentially what that is right there. Um, I also work with, I also teach creative writing to incarcerated inmates at Theo Lacey. Uh, I teach a, uh, a Tay group, which is um, here. I'm going to, I'm going to stumble for a second as I, as I, uh, I've only had a cup, one cup of coffee this morning. So uh, transi transitional age youth, those are uh, young people from the ages of about 18 to 25 who've been incarcerated generally for drug crimes. Um, and then I also work with a, uh, a group of uh, incarcerated veterans as well, too. They're in two different pods. Excellent. Um, so. um, I'm thrilled to talk to you a couple of reasons. One, your history of, of being an artistic director, and you're my first guest that actually also has experience in theater overseas in Europe. Mm. Uh, I want to get into that a little bit. But also, I think ending this podcast series, talking to you because of the work that you're doing um, with incarcerated people, we are in this podcast series examining how art is important. And uh, there's so many pressures, uh, you know, trying to make the case that art is important, it should exist, it should, it gives to the community. And right now you're working with populations with which already there are many in our society that would say, you know, they should be punished or every moment of their day of their life should be a punishment. So um, I thought that your perspective and the work you do uh, really does amplify um, the case that we're trying to make about what art does, not just for the artist, but for the community, the cultural capital they get from that. So we'll start off first with talking about being an artistic director your history as an artistic director is fascinating in we have covered case studies where art is confrontational and um, and things have changed and, and it becomes often uh, like in Orange County uh, South Coast Repertory Theater, which was this ragtag group uh, that became very successful. And now there's a lot of corporate money. So that energy that was there, let's say, in the 1960s and 70s with that group, it's a very different place now. It's gone. Yeah. I mean, let's, let's be blunt. Yes. Yeah. And um, for you starting um, your advocacy, your protesting and starting theater groups, can you, can you talk about that? The environment that you were working in and, and lived in, in Orange County um, and how that was for you, what was that journey of starting a theater group and you knew exactly what your vision was and you knew that it would not fit in the framework of what the community around you wanted or was comfortable with? Well, I started off as a political activist, you know, a, a kind of a stereotypically woke person, um, which I'm glad to accept that and say I, I'd like to think that I still am. Um, this was would have been back, uh, you know, in the 90s and 80s and 90s. I was a, an AIDS activist. I formed Act of Orange County with a couple of friends. Um, I also was part of Queer Nation here and Act Up Los Angeles as well, too, which is where I first got arrested for AIDS activism. So I, I did that. Finally, what happened was I, I ran head to head. 
uh, ran head to head into a, a situation where I was arrested for protesting a local homophobic minister. Uh, I, I, I did it in a church, um, which you're not really supposed to do. And uh, what happened was um, I shut down his meeting, got arrested, and then uh, went on trial. And so the the end result was that um, they didn't, all the things that they charged me with, like conspiracy and stuff like that, they weren't able to prove. Um, but I ended up uh, not being able to do the political work I wanted to. Otherwise, I was going to end up in a prison sentence, jail sentence. Um, so I thought, what's the next best thing? And that would be theater. So I went to community college, started, uh, took an improv group because it was something that I was not comfortable with. Um, and uh, uh, learned so much. And my friend and I thought, as we were taking it, we were like, initially we were going to take all this theater because we were going to try to meet actors so we could make some move, short movies or something. The end result was that we ended up uh, writing a play together about a, uh, a religiously religious fundamentalist couple who take over family planning clinic, uh, kill the doctor and hold the patients hostage and uh, with the idea of forcing them to give birth. And um, the play got terrible reviews, but it was the first play for Rude Gorilla. And uh, I almost quit. The reviews were so bad. Uh, but it was our friend Joel Beers, actually, uh, a local theater critic, who said, Dave, it's about the work. It's not about the reviews. Yeah. And you keep plugging ahead. And it was that simple. I mean, it was such simple advice. It was heartfelt um, and uh, inspired me to continue doing it. I ended up doing it for... Um, I won't count the last years that I haven't really done anything, but I'd say for about 15, 16 years now. So, um, uh, and that little theater that I started in my living room, my living room apartment ended up taking me to, uh, to Europe. Uh, I've got incredibly close friends who are, who are really big names in, in English theater, British theater. Um, I, I hit, it has been a, just a, a, what's the best word I could use here? Probably it's just been an abundance of riches um, from that little bit of sacrifice and uh, inconveniencing my roommates by having people rehearse in the living room. Can I ask you, what was it like the road that got you to theater here? And then when what you were doing and you could built up for yourself, the career that you built up in theater, you go overseas. What, what was the difference? Were there differences? What was it like for you? Because it was oftentimes swimming against a current, what you were trying to achieve here. What was the environment you found when you went overseas? Well, uh, here in the United States, uh, we were very fortunate because the work we were doing for Rue Gorilla was so provocative and so controversial um, that the papers had to cover us almost. We, we almost forced the issue because uh, there were threatened protests. Uh, we had bombing threats. We had the FBI show up. Um, police, police, the Santa Ana police wanted us, wanted to shut us down at one point. It, it was, it was insane. And uh, so we got, we gathered an, an, a lot of press as a result of that. So, and because I had already done press with ACT UP, I knew how to, how to use it, how to take advantage of it, and how to communicate well with the press. And I was always very honest with them. I never gave them any bullshit. 
And so as a result, developed very close relationships with critics uh, and with journalists. Um, and uh, so we, we had an easier time. And this was also a time when the newspapers were still around, of course, when they would still, when they would still come to colleges or universities and review work. Um, the problem was, is we were never really taken seriously. I think that people thought we were just, uh, you know, intentional bad boys who just did it in order to get press. And of course, that was never the situation. Um, uh, the press helps sell tickets. And when you're a small theater and you don't have anybody funding you, except yourself, um, we used to we used to have one fundraiser a year. It was about fifteen thousand dollars we would make on that fundraiser, and then all the rest of it was ticket sales and and us emptying our own wallets. A lot of times, um, we were able to do that for twelve years and still be in the black when we closed shop as we were gorilla. Um, but we were never taken seriously, and uh, in part because we were we didn't have multi million dollar. Um, sites like some other theaters locally. And uh, I'm, I'm not saying that to disparage them. I'm just saying there was always a much grander, safer focus for those other theaters than there was for us. So we, for 12 years, we essentially had moments where like if the next show failed, we were, we were going to fail and we didn't do it. And that was because of the support of the public. And and because I had a, a beautiful company of people who uh, worked hard, we all sacrificed um, and things like that. Uh, when I got invited to direct a play in Los in uh, Malta in Europe, mm -hmm. it was because one of my actors had been cast in a show that he had done for me. Got cast in a in a production of the same play uh, in in Europe, wow. uh, and they were so impressed with him. Uh, this was actor Keith Bennett, who was in some explicit Polaroids, Mark Ravenhill's play. Yeah. Uh, Keith, yeah. Keith was so good. He was born to play this part. Mm -hmm. um, that, and he got equally got good good reviews in Europe. That the the artistic director that said, "Well, look if this is," and he, he this is what he told me. He said, "If all of the cal if the caliber of all of your actors is as good as Keith is." then you're doing something right. So I would love to have you come over. I've got this play I'd like you to direct. Um, would you be interested? Mm -hmm. And that play was blasted by Sarah Kane, which I had been the second production of it in the United States mm -hmm. um, uh, several months earlier. And uh, I went to, went to Europe and then I ended up directing two, three, four, I want to say four plays mm -hmm. there over the course of about uh, eight years. Um, and uh, it was the uh, Adrian Buckle, the uh, artistic director there is uh, like my soul brother. He's a, a lovely man and uh, gave me opportunities that I would not have had if I hadn't tackled the work that I did. It was specifically because I took on work that other people were not doing Mm -hmm. I essentially directed and staged and produced plays for the most part. There are exceptions to that rule, but for the most part, plays that I wanted to see. Right. And that nobody else was doing and that I had no chance of seeing at any other theater locally. Right. Sometimes those plays would be done in Los Angeles, but not in Orange County. Right. 
and and, and, and that's still the same. Unfortunately. I was going to say it's a very I think it's a very important point where you say maybe in Los Angeles, but it's no joke when you say you you were the second production of a play you wanted to put on. It that is very unusual, and um, you know and. Yes, movies are much more accessible because the same thing's playing everywhere throughout the country. But in a lot of ways, theater, whether it's Broadway, regional, community theater, uh, there is sort of the same rotating titles, especially now. Yeah, yeah. especially. It's even worse now after COVID. I think there was a lot of hope. People were like, oh, everything's going to change. Right. It's it's, It's so fucking retro. Pardon my French. It's so retro at this point that... um, it's a retrograde. We have literally gone backwards. Uh, it's 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 distressing to some degree. It is, and um, and that's kind of what brings us to why we're here, and and what we're trying to prove with this podcast, with our case studies, with what we're looking at is there is a theory um, two theorists came up with, which I am putting forth that this is something that definitely should be used in theater arts, but in arts in general, what people are doing. And that is that cultural capital can be viewed through a different rubric um, that's much more accessible and it's much more in tune with what the arts do. And that is that the artist, whether it's a director, a writer, an actor, what they bring, their cultural capital, their diversity, their life, their lived life experience, it's unique. And they give it to the audience. And the audience who doesn't know what it is, who is unfamiliar with it, if they take that and it influences them and it changes them and it makes them think, they go out into the world and now they have that cultural capital. And that's how you you affect change. And that's really how you can measure what the arts have done uh, versus... Oh, it's a form of activism. It's a right. form of activism, really. Yeah. Right. And so um, I would love to transition to where you are now, because when we talk about, like we said, during the, the shutdown, everyone had all these hopes and dreams, I guess, because people were stuck at home. Things will change. We're going to do, you know, X, Y and Z instead of A, B and C. And then now that things are opening up, it's people we need to make money. And so it's here we go again, our town, here we go again with, you know, the same musicals over and over again. But and so here we are where you are working with incarcerated people who have an artistic point of view who or who are discovering that who are going through that process and we already live in a society that is very much cutting arts from schools um you know reading writing arithmetic right everyone is all about the takeaway you know don't indoctrinate our children whatever it might be from kindergarten to high school to college it's all about uh the basics people want to call it but there really is a deficit that when people then become you would think a well-rounded adult and they go out into the world we have this deficit of of art or, or how we're judging art now here you are you're working with incarcerated people and we i would think it's fair to say we don't live in the most forgiving society mm-hmm. and um and some who who have an idea of what it means to be incarcerated which is it must be 24 7 punishment or doing time. And here you are, you're doing something that is um, to help them in their process, in their recovery, in getting back to their life and to express themselves, even if it's expressing something that isn't just, I'm sorry, but more of their anger or their issues, whatever it might be. So can you go into how you arrived at this place and how you arrived at the curriculum and and the journey that you take with these students? This is a, an interesting journey here, uh, and, and I am generally loathe to use that word because it's so new agey and stuff like 
that. But there, there has been a process to this. I was approached by, by um, Arts Orange County and um, their, their president, Rick Stein, their CEO and president, to uh, see if I was interested in doing some work with um, prisoners because the California Lawyers for the Arts and the NEA had put a grant out. Um, it was a kind of thing that came their way uh, very last minute. He said, I know this is last minute, but you know, we can give you some money for this. Would you like to do it? You got to create your own curriculum and you're going to have to do it very fast. No so <laughs> no, no pressure, no pressure. But, you know, and, and to be honest, it was a solely a mercenary thing at the beginning. It was like, well, this would be fun. I I'll teach playwriting. Mm-hmm. So it's like, it's not going to even take me, I'm not going to even have to work very hard at it. Right. I was wrong. Right. I was wrong, of course. But um, what I did was I created a, a 10 week program uh, where people would be people who had had no understanding of theater whatsoever. Got an idea of theater, got an idea of plotting characters, conflicts, uh, resolution. And uh, by the end of the, the 10 weeks, they would have if they stayed in the program. Because that was never, that's never a guarantee. But if they stayed in the program, what would happen would be um, uh, they'd have a play, a short play. Two, and I tried to make it two short plays, but, um, you know, not everybody was interested in doing a play. I think many of them just wanted to get out of their cell for two hours. Uh, and I, I, it wasn't a blow to my ego for that to happen. Uh, I, I thought, well, I would, I would want to do that too. I take whatever came my way. So I uh, opened it up and uh, flexibility is the key to any kind of teaching. Let me tell you, Um, uh, you have to be flexible to your audience and to what people want. Uh, Contrary to theaters, I think theaters, you can program what you feel you want them to see, but it's not really the same situation when you're teaching. So I started to, uh, so I, I, I did it. Uh, I, I decided to focus on women because I just didn't want the dick swinging that I thought was going to be happening with men. Um, so I was like, let me, let me work with women. It was so eye opening. We, we would have long conversations. They'd go like, well, what did you think we were going to be like? And I said, well, I, I'd seen orange is the new black. So I had assumptions and they were like, La-, they laughed. Um, and I, and they also had assumptions about me too. So it was nice because we were able to talk like human beings. I never asked them what they did. Um, I called them by the name they wanted me to call them by. Um, they could call me Dave. They could call me Mr. Dave. They could call me Professor Dave if that's what they chose to do. Uh, fortunately, most of them just called me by my name. Um, and we had 10 weeks of relatively uh, good writing and camaraderie. And uh, it was more of a conversation than anything. Uh, when I first started, I lectured and I had did not go over well. So when we talk about flexibility, I was like, okay, wait a minute. I'm essentially reading from a prepared, from my prepared notes. I, I need to have those notes. Otherwise I will get lost, but I probably shouldn't stand up here and read them. So I'm going to start asking more questions. And that was the clue to success was I asked questions and I listened and I had conversations with people. And they were with individuals who I called my students. I never called them inmates. Um, uh, I, I, I call them that now for people outside of there. 
and I have actually used it with my Tay boys. I have actually used the word inmates a couple of times because they've used it. But for the most part, I always say, you're my students. I don't care what you did. Um, uh, I'm here to, to help you get through this. And I'm here to help you get out and hopefully give you a couple of skills that'll, that'll make your life easier when you get out of here. As, as one um, life or told, uh, one of the boys who passed on to me said, look, kid, the idea here is that you get out of here less fucking stupid than you were when you got in. And, and so I use that all the time. You know, allow me to help you be less stupid than you were when you came in. And uh, that actually, instead of being insulting or uh, the, the boys being defensive, they've actually really taken that to heart. I think they trust me and they know that my, my best wishes are for their, their I don't want to see them again uh, within the confines of the jail. Right. Your audience are the theater makers, are the art makers. And so they're both, they're your audience and they're also creating something. And a society might look at that and go, well, what's the point? Because, you know, who's going to see it? And I think you just answered the question is, if you can leave here, you know, less stupid than you were before, if, if it will help you make different choices and things connecting in your head a different way. So, you know, you arrive to a different conclusion when you are confronted with whatever it is that, you know, there are two roads. You go down this one or that one. Well, all of them, all of the young men and the adults that I work with at the jail. Um, I don't know if it's actually technically called a jail. I think it's a maximum, maximum security facility is what they call the LAC. But all of the young men and uh, the old, the adults that I work with, these people, when they get out, oh, these people, that sounds terrible. Um, well, the people. So let's just say that the people that, that I'm teaching are going to get out at some point and they're going to be your neighbors. Right. So, and I think it was Michael Moore who said one time, don't we owe it to ourselves to make that leap from a jail cell to the real world right. as, as comfortable, as progressive, as um, healthy for them and happy for them so they can come out and they've got work and they've got a place to stay. They're not on the street looking, looking to score drugs again. Um, we work with, with addiction issues and stuff like that. Don't we owe it to them just so we have better neighbors? Aren't we, don't we become better neighbors by providing an atmosphere for them to have a, a, a nice way home? Right. And um, I'm very realistic about it. Uh, I've had like two of my students Two, well, one of my students got released, went back to using drugs. He's already back. Uh, he's not in my class at this moment, and I kind of hope he isn't. Um, but uh, if he is, I'll be there with with. Uh, I'll be there welcoming and probably tell him what the fuck. But um, I, I understand that the work that I'm doing is minuscule when it comes to their recovery, uh, when it comes to their success outside, there's a lot of mitigating factors with them that uh, whatever art I can bring into their lives. And oftentimes, aside from gangster rap and, and, and pulp movies, uh, the reality is they don't read, they don't go to theater. Um, they 
may have deep thoughts, but those deep thoughts get get crunched and smashed down or obliterated by drug use. Um, realistically, I, I am a very, very small cog um, in the clockwork, but I, I hope to just keep keep running and, and doing my job and keep the whole machine running, I, I guess, to some degree. I want to use that weird, very strange metaphor, but the art that we have in our lives, it matters what art we have in our lives. So um, I know for me, like in my, in my most depressed, uh, you know, the times when I was sitting on a couch and uh, I just was zoning out feeling awful and I couldn't get off that couch, the things that saved me was the art I was watching on the TV. You know, during, during COVID, the books I was reading, and I was also, in, I'm also in school as well, too, finishing off degrees. Um, so that studying is a distraction, but, but the anime that I watched, the, the, the pulpy trash movies that I watched, the books that I read, the classics that I had to reread, all of those things nurtured me yeah. um, in ways uh, from my, from my couch. So um, art saves us. I do believe it's that. definitely much more in our lives than we give it credit for. Like you just said, it, it's on all the various yeah. forms and how you go to it in times of when you're at home, stuck at home or, or just as part of your daily routine that you don't even think about because um, you just expect it there. Um, we, we have expectations of art that uh, it rarely fulfills. Very true. Very true. Um, so as we arrive to this rubric um, that this theorist, the theorist that, uh, came up with cultural capital, the definition of it, and, you know, judge it by instead of, you know, numbers and, and concrete, you know, this, this, and this. It's really, like you said, a conversation. And so um, as we draw to, to a conclusion in our conversation, I have four areas I'd like you to comment on as you reflect where it is right now. And that's the point is that this rubric is used to take the temperature of where we are right now. It's not something that necessarily will be true a week from now, five years from now. And that's the whole point is constantly having a conversation. So uh, the first one, maintaining diverse cultural capital. Can you comment on that in your work, uh, working with your students and in your work of programming theater? Uh, how do we maintain diverse cultural capital? How do we maintain whether you as the director or playwright or the actors who want to put their art out there, how do we maintain that? Uh, well, what we can do as individuals versus what we can be doing for as society. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, as individuals, we have to accept responsibility. I mean, I'm, I'm about as white as you're going to get. Mm -hmm. I'm also, um, uh, I'm also old. And so, when we factor in age and we factor in um, mindset, like I'm, con I'm constantly being challenged at school to think in a different way than I thought before. Um, and I think I've realized over the past few years, especially as I've, as I've gotten higher degrees, I've started to understand how limited some of my vision has been, especially around issues of diversity. Now, having said that, um, I was always forward thinking about uh, putting faces on stage that were missing. Mm -hmm. um, whether it was like uh, uh, 
uh, Aurelia Loxon's Asian acting, where it was almost an entirely Asian cast. Uh, the, the, the largest amount of Asian faces ever seen on an Orange County stage short of maybe Madame Butterfly right. or some big opera thing. Um, doing a variety of different kinds of, uh, of work. Uh, we also were the first ones to really do a lot of, of, gay, of gay work as well, too. Uh, even though that has a tendency to be very kind of white, you know, obviously male focused. Um, women directors uh, trying to, to colorblind cast. Um, this resulted in a couple of like snafus, I think, on our part over the years. Uh, like we did Rashomon uh, uh, with some people from from stages at the time, and there was one Asian person in the cast. Everybody else was the base was white. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was that was a mistake on our part. Uh, well, it was when we were beginning, but we brought in black faces, we brought in Asian faces, we we brought in Latino faces when we could. Mm-hmm. Uh, weirdest thing is we were in Santa Ana for so long and, and um, we were just unable to, to find uh, Latino actors or Latinas. Um, and that was because the system wasn't just wasn't set up for it. The system, the, I think the assumption when you read a Backstage West, uh, or at least at the time, that's what it was. You would read a Backstage West casting notice. And even though I would say, you know, uh, people would assume they were, they were just looking for whites. Right. And to clarify for those, even if you weren't, yeah, to clarify for those that are not from this area, Santa Ana. So when Dave's referring to the city of Santa Ana, I don't know what the numbers are exactly, but the Hispanic population is definitely in the majority. I don't know if it's 70 30 or 60 40 or something, but it's. Uh, oh, I, th- I, think it's, I think it's a good 70, 75, 80. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So still, that's what he's is. referring yeah. to is that. Uh, the culture of the city of Santa Ana and the arts and, and all of that that he's referring to. So so you would he he would think most would think oh this must be easy to put on a show or to put on a production of something um, no. and and there were still challenges. So that's what he's referring to in that. Instance. Yeah, and w- and when we when we closed Rue Gorilla and started Monkey Ranch over and in Fullerton, it was even worse. Mm-hmm. It was even it was even wider. Right. So, um, but uh, so. So first off, to answer your question, go back to answer your question instead of like apologizing for the mistakes. Let's say that, well, you have to acknowledge your mistakes first mm-hmm. so that you don't continue to make them. Right. Secondly, um, you have to make a decision to cast the best actors of color you can find. Right. You just do right. it. You just do it. Stop casting you know, Joe Blow, who has been in everything and does every role and keeps getting cast because he's reliable, take some risks. You got to take some chances. Start doing work by writers that aren't getting done. Latino writers, black writers, Asian writers, even gay writers uh, or lesbian writers. Let's start doing that. Let's start casting trans people. These aren't difficult things. Once you put the word out and you start to show, prove it by putting those faces on stage and people come to support that, and I think they do. My experience has been when you take those risks, most of the time, 90% of the time, the audience is there with you. They want to see themselves reflected on stage. Gay people want to see themselves on stage. Asian people want to see themselves on stage. Blah, 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 blah. Exactly. Um, uh, so... 
it's not even just a mercenary thing. I don't think it should, the focus should be on money. And unfortunately, a lot of diversity is just about like, okay, well, we can get this grant if we, if we have a black person in our show. That's bullshit. And uh, I can't go there with that. But you can, t- you can kind of tell who's doing that and who isn't. Right. Uh, and as, go ahead. I was going to say, you just answered my second question of building new cultural capital and you just laid it out. Um, and I was just going to say, and I, you hadn't finished your thought, but you were talking about people who just specifically go after the grant money. Isn't that really just people who are looking for the one-off? It's not really about instituting cultural change. It's really about just, there's that opportunity. And should there be another one behind there? I'll go for that. But it's, it's not about, we're changing the culture of how we do things. It's really just that in the moment that can benefit me. So I'm going to pursue that. Well, ideally, somebody would get it in their fat head that the way to really support diversity would be to fund a series of plays by by uh, developing by and, and would encourage developing writers um, and people of color. I mean, um, or sexual sexually diverse people. I think that that is. It's got to be a series. It can't be a one-off. And um, I would urge people who care about theater and care about diversity to keep their eyes open. If it's just one show, um, don't bother. Skip them. Put your money where, put your money in a smaller theater maybe that isn't paying people like they should or like they can, like the bigger theaters can, but um, at least has their heart in the right place and is focused more on uh, sharing other stories, the story of people who uh, aren't like them, right. I think is is the healthiest the healthiest thing. Um, I don't know that we were ever ever successful in being able to do that because uh, theater during the time when we when I was working in Orange County and we were at our most popular per se mm-hmm. when we would fill our houses, it was a, a pretty much a white audience often. You know, affluence makes a difference. You know, they say, oh, well, we don't do uh, Latino plays because Latinos don't come to plays. Well, why is that? Right. Because they all they see are white faces and they're tired of the same white stories. I know I am. Right. Yeah. Very good point. Uh, my third question is about outlets for expression of political and social resistance and awareness. Um, mm. There was a lot mm. of awareness when we were sitting at home and couldn't go anywhere. A lot of promises made, letters signed, um, a lot of, you know, sort of like corporate uh, activism, like here, you know, put this, infuse this color in your logo or whatever it might be uh, to represent whatever the cause is. But here we are, we, we are easing restrictions, things are opening, people are coming up with seasons and sort of slowly creeping back to the output they had before. Where are we with creating outlets of political expression and, and, um, where is that and where do you think it's going is it the same um is will it evolve what do you think uh i don't know that it's going to evolve um i would like to believe well stay away from people who just like to sign things put their names on it Mm -hmm. you know follow the people who actually are doing something um i i follow playwright jeremy o'harris who wrote a slave play Mm-hmm. which is probably the most uh, vulgar and controversial and profound play that I have read uh, in years. 
And uh, it made me wince when I was reading it, made me laugh, and it still makes me think there's not a day that goes by where I probably don't think about this play. It will never get done in Orange County. Um, in part because of the nudity and stuff like that and the sexual themes, uh, but the, the language in it, uh, the racial language used in it, the very difficult racial things that it asks. Um, but um, it's, it's a beautiful play in the long run. And so I follow him on Twitter and, and uh, you know, he's starting to work now. He's working on Euphoria on HBO and among other things. So, I'm hearing more voices and maybe it's just because I've been listening to more voices. I think those voices have always been there. Um, But I try to listen. I try to uplift it. You know, so if I hear them, I want to talk about their play or I tell them, thank you for the work you're doing. You know, uh, uh, I I, I tell people when they offer me an insight, Uh, the woman who wrote the 1619 project, I also follow her as well too. Um, consistently interesting uh, feedback. And I'm a firm believer in critical race theory as well, too. I think CRT is important. Uh, It's not being taught in schools. It's being taught in, it's being taught on master's level, which is where I'm at in college. So don't let people fool you on that one. Uh, My last question is valorization by artists, agents, and audiences. So how does this enhance the, and we've really talked about it, but, you know, enhancing actors, audiences, writers, producers, directors, um, you know, in what ways does it enhance with that cultural capital that we put out there? You go here, take this and the audience takes it. And and seeing the work that you do, like you said, you know, giving them skills so that, you know, as they navigate their life outside of jail. But like you said, some do come back and there's so much going on um, that they do struggle with. So can you... Can you just sort of illuminate in ways that it really does enhance and um, that we really can't quantify it by ticket sales? What are some ways, and we really have talked about it, but if you can really just add to that as a period to this conversation. Well, I remember when, uh, you know, when I was running Red Gorilla and Monkey Wrench for that matter, um, I would be lucky. Well, you know, there were shows that we did like Corpus Christi where we would have sold out 100 seats. We would cram people in. And then other shows where we could barely get 40 people in. Uh, we'd get maybe 20 if we're lucky. And um, so I'm not very good at being able to pinpoint those things. I don't know. Controversy does make a difference if it's covered. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think you should chase controversy. I don't, I think that's a, that's a dead end. Right. It's um, like chasing fame, right? It's about the work. The fame is the fame. It's, it's about the fame. And, and what does it, what does the work say? Right. Um, right. And sometimes, you know, just seeing somebody naked on stage um, is the supposedly the attraction. Well, I've, I've done shows where there've been a lot of naked people on stage and yes, it does sell tickets to a degree, but there's gotta be something underneath it. Right. Otherwise it's just ex- exploitation. Right. Um, so when I was struggling to, to fill those seats or wholly uh, clueless about how to do that. Um, when I worked at the one time I worked at South coast repertory, um, I did pool, no water by Mark Ravenhill. Who he's a, he's a favorite of mine. Obviously he's also a close friend, but um, when we did Pool No Water there, the machine that they had for advertising sold out all of our shows. Mm-hmm. And I thought, 
okay, really? So this is really, I always knew I had this audience. Yeah. I knew those people were there, but did they just not? And, and when we looked at the the facts and figures that the, that the box office supplied to us later, most of the people who came to see our show uh, had been to South Coast Rep, but had never been to Rue Gorilla or yeah. Monkey Wrench. So these were people who, because of the card they got in the mail, and they targeted the card to people who liked more provocative theater, mm-hmm. we were able to sell out. So in the world that we have now, where everything is niche oriented, everything is focused, that you're uh, from everything from your uh, your Google searches are only going to basically show you stuff that you agree with, right. to uh, your Amazon choices is going to say, well, if you like that, you're going to like this, you're going to love this. that seems to be the wave of the future and in making it more targeted, but you're also talking about a shit ton of money that that's going to cost. And a small theater isn't going to be able to afford that. So um, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to leave that to people who are wiser about social media than I am, Mm -hmm. because I'm kind of getting to the age now where like, I love Twitter. Um, I I put up with Facebook mostly because all of my friends are on it. Right. I'm, I don't know how long, much longer I'm going to stay on it. Right. But for those that are scraping by in the arts, it is playing that game of how do we navigate this platform? How do we navigate this? And, and that is a big question mark. Definitely. My only, my, the only advice that I can give at this point, um, because I don't know how many more uh, of those uh, productions I have in me mm-hmm. um, before before COVID started, we were doing a, we were going to do a series of 10 short plays that were done uh, kind of, I want to say in a rondelay, but that's not really the word I'm looking for. Kind of in a, uh, we were going to take, we had been invited by a bookstore, a local bookstore to do a play in their space. And so I pitched him the idea of doing 10 short plays in different areas and sections, like in the fiction section and classic section, maybe even the bathroom out in their back area, back storage area out in front, stuff like that. Do 10 plays and people just being able to walk from play to play to play over the course of an evening. Unfortunately, COVID killed that. Right. I still, I still want to do that. And that may be one of the last things I do. Yeah, as a the, as a theater director, yeah. Well, site specific theater is where Monkey Wrench, uh, whatever whatever's left of it at this point, is focused on site specific stuff. I like that. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's 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 a, a rejection of theater space as as theater space that any place can be theater. Mm-hmm. That we it's there's a little more excitement to it. Um, it can be done cheaper in some ways because you're not you're not and this is where many theaters get you is that if you want to do a play someplace, you have to pay them to do it. And your rent and the rental almost always is more expensive than any money you're going to bring in. Right. Um, So that corruption right then and there makes, makes me say, fuck theaters, stop going. Yeah. Don't go to them. Go instead, create a space, a theater space in your local museum, create a theater space in your plaza area, create theater space in the band show over at the park. That's what we need to be doing. And for me, I think that it would be a revitalization of the kind of the grassroots aspect of of theater. Um, That would be a hell of a lot more interesting than any community theater I can think of. And also any um, even small theater like my own. Right. 
it's a lot more interesting. The potential for that is a lot more exciting uh, and a, a better possibility maybe right. for people. You really hit the nail on the head that things have changed and, and, and you can do theater by breaking away from the theater, just like, you know, COVID, it made us break away from certain things. And maybe the answer is that beautiful plaza area. California has wonderful weather and there are some really nice areas. California has, the bookstores are disappearing, but the ones that are there are unique, like you said, and, and there's something, there's culture to be gained from that. There's stories to be told through there. And if the people don't know how to access that content through the theater, the traditional theater space, go out to where the people are. And you've done that. You have done yeah. that through. Thank you. I've had my 15 minutes. Now I can maybe do the, do even better work. <laughs>